Amen. So here we are on the first Sunday of Advent. For those of you who don't really know or um, have wondered what Advent might be about, it's a word um, uh, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, uh, that actually comes from a Greek word, uh, parousia. Uh, Adventus meaning the coming, the event, the paying attention to what is about to happen. And parousia, which was a Greek term that was used to talk about the second coming of Christ. And somewhere around the third, fourth century or so of the church, uh, the, the church became uh, or began a liturgical calendar. And in that calendar, the purpose of it was to focus on Advent and give the church an idea of staying focused on the return of the Lord. And it came upon on the Christmas calendar at the time of Christmas so that at the birth of Christ, we would always remember that was his first advent and we would be looking forward to his second advent, the parousia, his second coming. And that we are to live our lives as the church in the context of his first advent and his second coming. And so that's what advent is about. That's why we celebrate it. That's why we light the Advent wreath and the candle representing hope, that we have this hope within us today, this hope of knowing that Jesus has come and the certain hope of his return. And so we want to enter into this Advent season asking ourselves a question, and that's what this sermon series over Advent will be about. Why Christmas? Why do we even celebrate such a date? There's no other faith in the world that celebrates that, by the way. Not in the way that we do. There's plenty that celebrate the holiday of Christmas or the season of Christmas. But you and I who are followers of Christ are to have a different attitude and a different perspective than what the world has appropriated as their own, which is really yours and really mine. And that is the celebration of... Not just the birth of the baby Jesus, but God coming incarnate in the man Jesus and invading history with the full presence and the deity of God. As Will read this morning, the very image of God, the true reflection of God, the exact reflection of God coming to you and me. Living our lives, living in our world, paying our punishment for sin, taking his own life up again, taking us up with him so that we might dwell with him forever and then reign with him upon his return. And that's what Christmas is truly about. It's you and I celebrating God coming. And God not coming just ethereally, but God coming truly in the flesh. So that he would feel everything that we feel. He would be tempted in every way that we're tempted. And yet without sin, he would die our death so that we might live his life. Merry Christmas. Happy Advent. This morning we say why Christmas. The first Sunday I want to talk about because God made a promise to make the wrong right. Because God promised that he would make the wrong right. I'm going to tie those three scriptures together. You may have 
followed through those and go, what do these three all have together to do with each other? And, and we'll hopefully tie that in so by the end of this message this morning, you'll kind of see a panoramic view of God making a promise and keeping that promise. I was um, been looking, uh, I was watching a movie this past week, uh, and it's similar to all movies that are about uh, the nuclear holocaust. Uh, any movie that tries to imagine what the earth would be like after a nuclear war, you see, you know, the nuclear winter and everything's just devastated. There's that one little squirrely tree that's just standing by itself that somehow survived when the whole forest went down. Um, there's the, you know, the hairless animals running around that look weird and all that. And I, and I thought about that for a moment, and I thought about maybe it will be like that. I mean, maybe if there were a nuclear war, maybe that would be exactly what things look like. Why would we ever do that? And then I realized why we do that is because a nuclear war, what that might be like is just the macro level of what happens in the micro level of our homes every day. A nuclear holocaust is only a bigger picture of the smaller picture that happens in our hearts, within our own homes, and our own lives every day. You remember what the Apostle James said, right? Fourth chapter. What causes quarrels among you? What causes wars? Is it because you can't get what you want and therefore you murder? You see something, you covet for something, and you can't get it, and so you go to war? What causes quarrels in your own home? You see, there's something really wrong. There's something really wrong on the micro level. There's something really wrong on the relational level. There's something really wrong on the regional level. There's something really wrong on the national level. There's something really wrong on the universal level. Something happened. Something went wrong somewhere. And yet we see in this verses of Genesis chapter 3, two things. One, what went wrong And the second thing is God making it right. Look at these verses again with me. I'm just going to kind of go through Genesis 3, 14 and 15 right now. It says, So the Lord said to the serpent, in cursing the serpent, you remember what happened? Adam and Eve ate from the true tree that they were forbidden to eat from, bringing death into the universe and causing a a complete corruption of everything, including human life. And in this cursing, though, when God says, here's the results of what you've done, he comes to the serpent and he says these words, because you've done this, because you tempted the man and the woman to eat of the fruit, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat the dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And here it is. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? Why would God say that, even in a cursing? Here is a blessing hidden even within the curse. 
And God's amazing compassion and God's amazing mercy, by God's amazing grace, inside of the curse, even of the serpent, he tells you and I he is compassionate and he will bring victory over what has happened. He tells us that from the seed of the woman, salvation is going to come from her seed and there will be enmity between those who belong to God those who are the children of God and those who are of the world and of Satan. But fear not because you will only do a minor blow to his heel. But he will do a death blow to your head. In this verse right here, God says the gospel is coming and victory will come in the seed of the woman by killing the head of Satan. You see, right there, God makes a promise. It didn't happen just in that moment, but He made a promise that it was going to happen. Look at how what corruption came from that, though, with me for just a moment. The first thing is, I noticed from these verses that the very first thing, the very first result of sin is fear and shame. You remember the question that God asked Adam and Eve, right? When they were hiding, we heard you in the garden, so we hid. Why did you do that? Because we were naked. Who told you you were naked? We hid in the garden because we were afraid. Why were we afraid? Because we were ashamed of our nakedness. Fear and shame came into the earth as a result of sin. The same fear and shame that you feel inside your heart today is the very same fear and shame that your mother and your father Adam felt in that moment. That fear and shame that controls you in your home this day is the very same fear and shame that controls you in your workplace. It's the very same fear and shame that controls you within your relationships. It's the very fear and shame that controls you in everything that you do and everything that you are. It's that very same fear and shame that Adam and Eve passed down to you when they first felt it and experienced it. At the core of every human being is the corruption of fear and shame. The second thing I noticed there was that nature is undone. Because of it, cursed are you of all the livestock and the wild animals. Because of this, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Somehow, and I don't know the mystery of all of it, I don't, I don't believe that somehow the snake lost its legs at this point, but somehow the serpent was to be seen before the fall as some element of grace, some, some movement, some wonderful kind of being that was above nature, above all the other animals of the field. But in this fall, God curses nature. You see, everything went upside down. That which used to be above the cattle is now below the cattle. That which used to be something of grace is now something of corruption. That which used to be congruity and, and peace and shalom within God's creation is now everything in the antithesis of shalom, but chaos and corruption in nature. And you and I see it today. We... we Normalize it by saying it's the natural order of things for a, a lion to eat a lamb. 
And we have TV shows on National Geographic. We have Shark Week. Anybody watch Shark Week? I don't either. But the one episode I saw really bothered me. But those scientists on there were telling us what? That shark eating that little seal pup is normal. I'm sorry, I don't feel normal when I see that. I watched a special the other night about pumas eating llamas. And they showed a puma chasing down a llama, mountain lion, pacing that or a llama, and it got on the back of that llama, and the llama kicked it off, and I was like, praise God for llamas. <laughs> There's just something not normal about attacking and dying and death. And nature is full of it. It's corrupt with it. The third thing I noticed is this. The dominion is disrupted. You remember God gave Adam and Eve dominion over all of creation. But now what happens? There's enmity. There's chaos. There's chaos in several ways, but the most important way is that the fourth thing here is that relationships became dysfunctional. Look at the relationship with Adam and Eve. How God said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband. He's talking about your desire will be for his place, for his role in the garden, for his role in creation. Adam advocates his role. And Eve wants his role. There's nothing more than, than corrupt, than mixed up roles. One place to look at it today and to focus on it and to see it clearly is in our restroom situation. We have a whole generation that's coming up that are the microcosm of the macro of what's wrong. They don't know who they are. Their roles are confused. And our culture does what with that? It helps the corruption by trying to normalize it. And saying that it's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with it. We'll create a whole new restroom system just for you. It's not going to be normal. It will never be normal because there's something wrong. But God made the promise in this that the corruption is covered. How? In verse 21 it says this. After all of this, after God has cursed Satan and made the promise of the corruption being covered and that the, the, the Satan will strike the heel of Jesus, but Jesus will crush his head, it says this, The Lord then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Look at what God did here. God made a blood sacrifice. These skins just didn't magically appear. Death now entered into the garden. Death now entered into the world. And God slayed animals, shed their blood. For what purpose? The blood was spilt so that the shame of Adam and Eve could be covered. Not by fig leaves. Not by just mere coverings. 
but by death and blood. It was the only way that shame could be covered. Until that day that would come when the blood of His own Son would cover you and I in the robe of His righteousness and take away our shame. You see, God made a promise to cover the corruption. That's why we needed it. Let's look now at the promise. We had a need for a promise, but let's look closely at the promise, the miracle of a son. Skipping now to Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. You remember Abram is Abraham to be the father of many nations. And what does he say to Abram? Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield. I'm your very great reward. What's happening here? God is, is God not taking away the fear and the shame that Abram felt? This comes on the heel of a great war of which Abram was the victor. And we see the rising of the priest, Melchizedek, and Abram giving the tithe. And this is a time right after that where Abram was probably afraid. Afraid of retribution of the other kings that might come back looking for revenge. The fear of, of knowing that there were people around him that maybe wanted him dead. Or at least wanted his wealth to be taken away. And yet God comes to him and says, there's no need for fear. There's no need for shame. Why? Because I'm making you this promise, Abram. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. And God says, I, Abraham says, but God, what can you give me since I remain childless? You've given me no children, so my servant in my household, he will be my heir. Word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What are we seeing here? We're seeing God focus in and God unveiling even in a more acute way the promise that He had made in the garden to Adam and Eve. He now is beginning to fulfill in the man Abram by saying, Abram, listen to me. I have a plan to restore everything. And you are the key person in this plan. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed because I'm with you and I'm your shield. And there's not going to be a natural way that this is going to happen. But it's going to be a supernatural way that this is going to happen. It's not going to be your servant. And you may think you're too old to have a child. You may think you're as good as dead as the Apostle Paul would put it. But let me tell you something, Abraham. In a very supernatural, in a very Holy Spirit-oriented way, I'm going to make you a father. And not just the father of one, but the father of many. So many, you can't even count them. I don't know about you, but if God came to me and said that to me in any kind of form, I'd feel pretty confident about things. I think my courage factor would go up just a bit. I think my peace would go a little bit higher. I think my joy would begin to kind of spill a bit over. I think my faith would grow. With this miracle, son, look what happens fear is removed. 
Fear not, Abraham. I'm with you. That which happened in the garden, which entered into the garden, God now removes with His promise that I will be with you. Fear is removed. Look what else happens. The relationship between God and men begins to be restored. How does Abraham get referred to in the Scriptures as what? The friend of God? Next week we'll look at the advent of the promise made to keep a promise to a friend. The reason there's a Christmas is because God made a promise to an old friend, his friend Abram. The relationship with God is healed that God says, I will be your great reward. And then this amazing promise of a seed. We have the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan. And we have the seed of Abram that will bless all nations. We see the need for a promise in Genesis 3 and the promise being made in Genesis 15. Then I want you to look with me at the restoration. This is in Isaiah. It's more than our greatest expectations. God says to Isaiah, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham. Look back. Look at the promise I made right there in chapter 15 of Genesis. Look at that. Your father Abram and Sarah who gave you birth, when I called him... He was one man, and I blessed him, and I made him many. The Lord will surely comfort Zion. Zion is another word for God's people. God will surely comfort you, and God will surely comfort me, and will do what? Look with compassion on all of her ruins. You and I can look at our lives and see our past. I've lived long enough now to have a past. Some of you have too. And in our past we can see sometimes the ruins of the remnant of the corruption that still exists within us. Ruined relationships. Ruined friendships. Ruined marriages. All sorts of ruins that lie in our past. Ruined financially. Ruined health. And yet God says He will look at compassion on those ruins. And listen to this. He will make the deserts like Eden. God will restore her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and sounds of singing. In this day that the Lord returns in His second advent, everything will be greater than you and I could have ever expected. Every place there was a ruin in our life, we will be compensated for by God's gracious grace, more than we could have ever imagined. That which has been broken in our lives will be fixed and restored beyond anything we could have ever asked for. 
fear and shame in this are all gone. Totally removed. Nature is restored. Relationships made right. Look at what God is saying here. In these last verses, the Lord will surely comfort Zion, will look with compassion on her ruins. He will make her deserts like what? Right where we started. Right where we just started in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Before the fall. Her wastelands, that which was corrupted like the garden of the Lord. Better than Eden. The true garden of God. And of course you and I can look forward to Revelation 22. And what do we see there? Do we not see the throne of God surrounded by what? Water that's flowing forth from the throne and up and down the river are what? The tree of life. The tree of blessing. God's blessings eternally flowing from His throne as we eternally live with Him and reign with Him forever and ever. Better than Eden. You see, God made a promise back in the garden that He would make that which was corrupt, incorruptible. That God sealed that promise with His Son. That as you and I live in this world right now, we live with the expectation of that promise being fulfilled and the return of His Son, Jesus. And yet, even in those moments, we are covered with His righteousness. We are indwelt with eternal life. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So that even in this day we know to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And the day is coming when our spirits will be reunited with an incorruptible, an imperishable body like the one we have today. That will be like the one Jesus came back with. And between you and me, there will be no animosity. There will be no shame. There will be no fig leaves that we use to cover up. Everything that was wrong will be made right. God calls us to live that way now. He tells us the day of that fulfillment is coming. Enter into that which I have already given you. You see, that's who the church is. It's not a building. It's not an address. It's not a set of programs. It is a collection of people who follow Jesus, who are committed to these truths, who believe this with all of their heart more than they believe their own life, who are saying, we are a taste of heavenly beings to this earth. The church is a revelation of what goes on in heaven every day. When you and I sing hymns, we're not singing hymns because we like hymns. We're singing hymns to tell the world a message. That we are the people of heaven. We are the citizens of heaven. 
shouting out to the world, we belong to God and our God reigns. When we sing praise songs, we're not singing them because they're cute and we like them and they make us feel warm and fuzzy. That's not the purpose of them. The purpose of them is that they are an offering unto our God and praises of who He is so that the world may know that our God reigns. When we teach or we preach, we're not doing it just to make you feel better or to get a full tank of gas or to have something to talk about over lunch. You don't think I know about Rose Pastor. But I do. It all gets back to me eventually. But that's not the point. The point is, is to teach and to preach the gospel of the reigning God so that your life and my life might be transformed so that the world out there can know heaven exists, heaven is real, and we are a taste of it. We don't have relationships within this church because we have an affinity for one another solely. We have relationships in this church so that the world can know how real and true relationships function the way they do in heaven. Why Christmas? Because God made a promise and He kept it. And the results of that promise are that you and I live for Him. That the world may know. What could be new about you this Christmas? What's, what's new about me this Christmas? I hope these scriptures bring a deeper understanding to my world. There's a German phrase, a theological term that's used back in seminaries called Sitzenlaben. Don't say it fast because sometimes it comes out wrong. It means situation in life. How does your theology apply to your situation in life? How do these words, how, do these, how does God speaking, God speaking directly to Adam and Eve, God speaking directly to Abram, God speaking directly to Israel, to Zion, how do these words affect your situation in life? What does today's message change about the way you see the world? What does it change about the way you see your spouse? What does it change about the way you see your children? What does it change about the way you see your work? What does it change about the way you see your friendships, your relationships? What does it change about the way you see your enemies? Second thing is, I hope I trust that God is working. I want my trust to grow that God is at work. That God is going to bring peace. He's going to bring shalom to the entire universe. And I can have that peace in my heart and my mind right now. But I have to trust that God's at work. That life is not random, but that God controls every molecule in the universe. Maybe the third thing I have to remember is this. The Christmas reminds me God keeps His promises. That is a calendar date that we celebrate God keeps promises. In the same way He made a promise to Adam and Eve, the same way He made a promise to Abram, the same way Jesus made a promise to you and I. 
He would never leave us or forsake us. And that if He has left, He's coming back. And until that time, we are clothed with His power, His righteousness, His Spirit. And that we are the testimony, we are the ambassadors of Jesus to the world. Let me just give you three quick things to finish on this morning to take with you. Three things I noticed about God in these three different verses. In the first, I notice how compassionate and determined God is. God could have easily walked away. God could have, and justifiably so. Death could have happened immediately instead of death being covered by the blood of an animal and covered in the righteousness of those animals' blood. As a sign of the true righteousness that was to come in Christ. Am I becoming more compassionate? Am I determined to see it through? I look at Revelation and I see those are the two things in the, in the message to all of the churches that Jesus says at the end of all of the churches. Are you compassionate and will you be faithful to the end? In the second grouping of verses, I see that God is working on His plan and He's faithful in His love. God hasn't forgotten what He promised Adam and Eve in the garden. He was faithful in between that time and Abram. He was faithful between Abram and Jesus. And he'll certainly be faithful from Jesus in his return. And then in the last, in this message to Israel, what do I see? A God who redeems, a God who restores extravagantly. Maybe you've never thought of God being extravagant. The Apostle Paul sure did. He'll give you, what, more than you and I could ever? It's a big deal. God's not a miser. The God you serve is extravagant. He will bless you and I beyond what we even think a blessing is. Christmas is about understanding. You're going you're gonna to think, oh, you know, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. We're content with mud pies in the ghetto versus a holiday at the beach. You're going to get much more than a holiday at the beach. Because God made a promise. That's true. And God keeps his promises. Let's pray.